0: To the Chef's Table podcast. This is episode number four. I'm pretty excited about today's podcast. It's the next logical progression when you think about culinary school. We're going to be talking about soups this week. Uh, but it's just a makes sense for the type of day I got going on today. I'm actually uh, sitting in my car blocked from the uh, high winds and cold weather here in Las Vegas, of course, nothing like the Midwest or East Coast in terms of cold weather, but for Las Vegas, it's a little chilly here, so I thought soups would be a great topic uh, for today, so uh, that's what we're going to talk about, going to basically talk a little bit about the history of soups. Just a little bit. I mean, obviously, you know, you can't talk too much about it, uh, but just a real brief history and then kind of break down some of the classifications of soup that we teach in culinary school. And then I'm going to finish up this podcast with sharing a recipe that I like to make at uh, my house. Um, I know you can't see me make it, but I'll explain, you know, the uh, ingredients and procedures and kind of walk you through how to do it. So anyways let's get started. So let's talk about soups. So, you know, if you kind of look at the history of soups, I mean, quite honestly, you could probably almost trace back the history of soups almost to when, basically when mankind pretty much figured out how to use fire. Um, You know, when you look uh, in the research online and in books, you know, one of the first Examples they give of soups actually goes all the way back to 2000 BC. They apparently found some kind of pottery that had scorch marks on there. And, you know, some researchers suggest that possibly this is a way that they could make soups. Um, Another example that they give is... uh, that, uh, you know, ancient ancestors could have dug a hole in the ground and lined it with some kind of animal skin and filled it with water and put in hot rocks and made something along the lines of soup um, as well. Um, possibly Neanderthals, you know, taking bones and uh, cooking the bones in hot water to render off the fat to possibly balance out their diet from having so much uh, protein and, um, there's even a mention of uh, a study from uh, in 2011 from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. They found evidence of cooked starch grains that were embedded in a 46,000 year old fossil Neanderthal tooth from Iraq. So it doesn't necessarily mean they made soup then, but you know who knows? Maybe they knew how to heat up um, liquids to to make some kind of a porridge or you know something like that so uh, who knows that's probably though it makes sense that they probably uh, even at that time understood you know the uh, healing properties and the benefits of cooking uh, you know bones and broth ancient Rome there is obviously uh, some a little bit more detailed uh, explanation here of soups Um, they have uh, soups called uh, I believe they're Mini tools that uh, basically contain, contain ingredients locally found. Obviously, they're going to use what was around the area: seafood, vegetables, spices, and possibly sweetened uh, a little bit with honey, maybe even wine. Um, so definitely, you're going to see some kind of soups. You know, from from ancient Rome and in China. Obviously, you know, very well known for wonton soup, and uh, even you know they've traced that back to the seventh century China where they start to see uh, the first makings of wonton soup. Uh, But what we, you know, kind of teach here in culinary school um, is a little bit more of starting around, um, you know, 16th century uh, in France. Um, You know, in France in the 16th century, um, uh, once the, uh, you know, um, people were able to start to, open their own businesses, Um, you have these street vendors um, who used to sell uh, a uh, very inexpensive soup, um, but uh, what they did was they sold it and uh, basically marketed it as saying it was kind of an antidote to uh, physical exhaustion from people being tired. Um, and, you know, they knew even before that time that soup does actually have, could have healing powers. Um, you know, if you listen to nutrition, you know, podcasts or read nutrition, bone broths are very, very popular now as, um, you know, supposed to be very good for your gut area. Um, and as well as having many other healing properties and, you know, what it would most of us or some of us crave, uh, or want um, if we feel under the weather, feel sick. Well, a lot of times, um, you know, chicken soup comes up. And even in my house, when people aren't feeling well, we'll always end up making a, a pot of chicken soup. And there's just something about having that warm, um, you know, soup uh, that really kind of warms the body and makes you feel better. And sometimes, you know, just helps you go back to sleep and get some rest and give your body a chance to heal up. What's interesting is um, the one of those street vendors actually uh, decided to open up his own place off of the street um, and uh, opened his own place, basically calling it a restorative, which made its way to meaning restaurant. And if you look at the history of... Food service, this is a lot of times where they'll trace, you know, the first restaurant serving food to the public uh, back to. Uh, 1765, as a matter of fact, was the year um, that uh, this person owned a shop, opened the shop up, specializing in uh, soups. And um, so there you have it. One of the first restaurants ever in history started. ...based off of selling soups. So, you know, what we teach in culinary school... Um, ...is a couple of different categories of soups. Um, but to back it up just a little bit... ...if you look at Le Guide Culinaire... ...Escoffier, uh, if you look at the, the chapter on soups... Uh, ...he basically says that soups could be broken down... ...into two main categories... Um, clear soups and thick soups, and then basically what you know we teach in culinary school is pretty much the same thing. We use categories of uh, what we call clear soups, uh, and under that main category of clear soups, you have broths, you have vegetable soups, and consommé. And I'm gonna go over each one of these in a few minutes. Um, then under your thick soup category, you have cream soups, you have purees, bisques, chowders, and you know even you could talk about regional soups, specialty soups, which really wouldn't f- necessarily c- fall under either one of those c- categories. But if you had to, it would probably be under the category of uh, thick soups. So back to our two categories. Starting off with clear soups. So you know that where we start with clear soups, um, the first one I usually talk about is broths. And if you listen to my podcast on stocks, I did mention a little bit about the difference between a stock and a broth. Broths are generally made from meat, poultry, game, fish, vegetables, and sometimes bones. Versus a stock is strictly from bones. Um, you know, depending on what cut of meat, you know, you you definitely want something a little bit higher with the cartilage. Um, You know, if you're going to be cooking meats to make broth, you you definitely want something that um, that takes a little while to to break down, such as from the shoulder or uh, the rump area on the on the cow. Um, And you know, it it takes a while to cook it, but eventually it breaks down and releases a lot of collagen and um, lots of flavor comes out. So, broths do have a role uh, in the food service industry on a menu. Um, you know, a lot of times if you see a thin, clear soup, they're a lot of times served very often in, near the beginning. Um, they're a great way to get kind of get the menu rolling, um, you know, kind of get people into the mood of the menu, and they can also stimulate the appetite. Um And while not necessarily the hardest thing to make, um, you definitely do want to make sure you pay good attention. And a lot of times they're going to require a good deal of time and making sure that you skim off any impurities that rise rise to the surface. So broths are our first category of clear soups. Next, we get into... One of my favorite categories of clear soups and soups in general, and that is consommes. Could mean something as simple as a chicken broth or in the terms of the culinary world, a consomme actually is a clarified stock or broth that then becomes a clear Broth that is served, and then um, lots of times we'll have a garnish associated with it. And you know, to me, consommés um, give the impression of something a little bit more elegant. Uh, and if I if I see the word consommé on a menu, um, you know, especially consommé royal, consommé br- Brunois, what I see in that is someone who is taken a lot of time to make this very exquisite, basically clarified broth that shows a lot of skill set, and I would definitely be drawn to that if I were to see it on a menu. Um, So a consomme is, uh, like I said, it's a soup that's clarified, which I'm going to explain what the clarification process means, Uh, but if it's done correctly... It's some, it is a, 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 a liquid that is crystal clear, you know, and the example I usually give is, you know, you think about the ocean uh, in the Bahamas or, or wherever where there's this crystal clear blue water and, you, you know, you could walk out, you know, as far as you could and you can still basically see, you know, all the way down to the, the bottom of the ocean. So you think of that, you know, that clarity Um, You know, and obviously it's going to be very, very strong and rich in the flavor of the main ingredient. And consommes, due to the fact that they are basically have the addition of of meat twice during the cooking process, they have a high gelatin content. And, uh, you know, once it's actually chilled down, it actually turns into jello because it has such a gelatin, high gelatin content and consommés are, were made, uh, as a soup, but also they were used in, uh, aspic work basically where how to explain this is, uh, you know, where you would maybe, um, you would make a, a pate or, um, and certain items that you would put out on a on a, a platter on a buffet, and, and what you would do is you would coat them with this aspect to give them a, a real nice sheen and almost like a preservation kind of method uh, while they stayed out on the buffet. And uh, you know, in, in culinary school, it, the it's something that's learned in, in a garde class. It's kind of a dying art. Um, I was fortunate to to do a little bit in culinary sc- culinary school and learn some in the trade, and I actually taught a garde manger class for a while, uh, so I was able to work and, and with it and, and do aspic work again, and it was really cool. It's definitely a high skill set in the kitchen. Um, so consommes uh, are really basically four main ingredients. Well, I guess you could say five. Uh, so you need to start with a good, strong, stock, or broth. Alright, and let's say we want to make a chicken consomme. In that case, we would start with a chicken stock. Then, the second component that you would find in consomme is going to be ground meat of the flavor of the intended outcome of the soup. So, in this case, if we were making chicken consomme, we would use ground chicken. Or, if you were making a beef consomme, you would use a ground up or minced up beef. So, you can see there. That's how that consommé ends up with such a strong, rich flavors because you've already got the flavor of the broth of the stock, and then you're adding more of that flavor in through the ground meat. All right, the second component or third component you find in consommé are egg whites, and egg whites play a very crucial role in making consommés. They contain albumin. And once that albumin is heated, it coagulates, and it brings the ground meat together along with the mirepoix, um, and it creates what is called a raft. It sounds very strange, uh, but that's the term that's used. And basically all of those solid ingredients come together into one mass, and they actually float up into the surface. And I'll explain what that means in just a little bit more. Okay? But those egg whites... Are very important because they are what clarifies the consommé. Okay, I've seen consommés made, or I've seen broths or stocks clarified using just egg whites, and that may be for like uh, if you were to do aspic work or something along those lines. Okay, so but in in the case of making a really good flavorful consommé, you you definitely want to have that ground meat in there. An acid can also be added in, you know, depending on which cookbook you read. Um, Generally, an acid is added in. um, And in in this case, um, you know, let's say the chicken consomme, uh, we may add in a little bit of wine, possibly lemon juice. Uh, If you were doing a beef, you could possibly do tomato paste. Um, But the purpose of the acid is to help the coagulation of the egg whites speed up. That acid helps speed up the process. So... While it's not necessary, it is definitely something that you would want to consider in putting in your consomme. And then the last thing are aromatics, um, such as mirepoix, and then maybe a bouquet garni or sachet de piece, basically fresh herbs like thyme, bay leaf, peppercorn, things like that. So those are your five components. So how do we actually make our consomme? It's funny when, as I'm going through this, it's bringing back memories of me teaching uh, soups week in culinary school. And quite honestly, I loved this class uh, that when we cooked soups because of the fact that we were making consomme. Um, I absolutely love teaching the, how to make the consomme, but I love even more watching and helping students make it. And then when that final outcome comes out and... You bring together the science behind consomme and the skill set that they have learned. And they sit down and they actually look at this consomme and it's crystal clear and it tastes amazing. And it, it's really cool to see, um, you know, their reaction and what a new skill set that they have learned. And generally, they're pretty happy when they leave uh, class that day after learning this technique. So um yeah, this is probably, I'm going to probably have a lot of time spent here on consomme compared to the rest of the podcast, but I really, really enjoy making consomme. And when it's done right, it's just a um, a thing of beauty in the culinary world. Okay, so making consomme. So the first thing you have to remember when making consomme is everything has got to be super cold here, all right, in order for those proteins to begin to start to Uh, break down a little bit Uh, and what I would teach is I would actually tell the students to take the stock pot that they're going to cook the consommé in and we would actually put that in the fridge or the freezer and then I would tell them to keep the egg whites in the fridge the ground meat in the fridge everything was nice and cold until right to the point where they were ready to put it together and bring it up uh, up on the stove so first thing remember everything needs to be super cold okay then you take your egg whites and basically put them in the bowl and you whip them up. Get a little bit of air into them, just a little bit of froth, right? We're not, we're not trying to make meringue, but basically just get a little bit of froth into them. Then uh, your ground meat goes in along with your mirepoix, and then I would tell them to get a wooden spoon and mix it up real good. So it basically it looks like dog food, right? Mix it up really, really good. All right, and then you can add in if you want what's called an onion brulee. So this is where you take an onion, you slice it in half, and then you can get a nice hot cast iron skillet, and you take a, that half of onion, the flat side that you cut, and you put that down in the skillet, and you literally basically burn it. Right, brulee is basically basically means burnt in French per se. So you're pretty much, you know, almost, you're really charring this up real good. All right. And this onion brulee will add a little bit of that charred flavor, but it'll also help to give a beef stock a little bit more of a a darker color. And if that's what you're shooting for, for your consomme, you could add it in. It's not necessarily, but necessary, but it is something uh, to consider to put in. And generally you can chop it up, or if you have a smaller onion, you could leave it whole. But usually I tell the students to chop it up. So you put that in, put your cold stock in and then you put in your components for the sachet de peace, which is your fresh thyme, uh, bay leaf, peppercorn, parsley stem. You don't need to make the sachet because it's uh, going to get trapped in the raft but you need to at least, you need to put the ingredients in there and then give it a good mix one more time. Then the students go up to the stove and they put it over a low flame. At this point here, I tell them it's going to require some maintenance. You need to pay attention to the consommé. You can't throw it up on the stove, walk away, and go do something else. You've got to stir it periodically so that the ground meat and the egg whites don't burn on the bottom. So basically, you need to stir this right until the point where the proteins begin to coagulate which is going to be somewhere right around 140 degrees and at that point you'll start to feel all those solid ingredients will come together in one mass and that mass as I told you about earlier is called a raft and basically that raft will actually end up floating to the surface and that raft is now your filtration system to clarify the stock so as the or the broth, right? So as that stock is, is slightly bubbling around the outside, it's coming up to the top, it's hitting the raft, and it's kind of using it like a filtration system. And the other technique that I teach is have them, once the raft has come up and it is solidified and it's sitting on the surface, is to actually cut a little hole in the middle or poke a little hole in the middle, and what you can do is you can dip down into the, the broth and basically lift up uh, with a ladle and basically take some of the broth and you basically just kind of put it over the top of the raft so that it doesn't dry out, and it also helps to, you know, kind of filter some of the broth that's, that's down there. And over just a little bit of time, you can peek down in that hole and you can tell right away whether or not that stock is going to clarify or, or broth, whatever it is that you're using. So basically, you just kind of let it simmer for maybe an hour or so, or depending on how much you're making, could be less, could be longer. Um, and then once it's to the point where you're happy, you taste it and, and you've got the fla- the uh, the strength of the flavor profile in there, you it didn't, don't need to worry about seasoning right now, okay? Okay. Um, but once the strength is in there, the strong flavor of, of whatever it is, the chicken or the beef or whatever it is that you're making, then you need to actually strain it. All right. You know, I've seen some people teach where you can make it in a stock pot that has a spigot and you could turn the spigot on. I'm not a big fan of that, but it's one way you could do it. Generally, what I would teach the students is they need to ladle this out. But once it you begin to ladle out the consomme, you have to strain it. It's also going to be very greasy. Okay, so when you strain it, you need to have something in there to help catch the grease. Some places teach cheesecloth, but what I teach is to use actually a coffee filter. And you put the coffee filter inside of uh, your strainer, a sieve, a china cap, a chinois, whatever. Put that, put that in there, and then you take a ladle at a time, and you basically just ladle it through the coffee filter. If it's really, really greasy, you have to change the coffee filter a couple times. Uh, but that's the best way to do it. Okay, and then when it's done, you know, you could serve it that day. Um, but you have to further degrease it. Generally, what I would do if I was to do this in my restaurant, I would I would actually make it a day before. I would chill it down correctly, like we talked about in the stocks week. Uh, and then the next day when I come into work, what's going to happen is any grease that's on there will have solidified and will be sitting on top of my now jellied consomme and I can just scrape it off and then I can reheat the consomme and it should be very crystal, still be crystal clear and hopefully there's hardly any grease on it at all, if none. All right, and then... After that, how you serve it is up to you, right? But if you look at um, Escoffier's Le Guide Culinaire, there's actually 12 pages dedicated just to different uh, styles and types of consomme. And basically, the consomme, when you look at the second part of the name, that's what really dictates kind of what the garnish is and possibly what the flavor type is. So an example I would give the students is, what we call, uh, what is called consomme brunoise, right, so if you're in the culinary world, you know what brunoise is, brunoise is a, a type of knife cut, it's a small little dice, it's one-eighth by one-eighth by one-eighth, so you could brunoir carrots, you could brunoise, you know, turnips, rutabaga, uh, potatoes, whatever, um, but anything that's got a little bit of, um, you know, fibrous uh, to it so that it, would, it will hold up. They're pretty small dices, but if you do it correctly, they look really nice, and you can do a little confetti of it with different colors. Um, so that that's one example. Another example is called the consomme royale, if you look in, uh, you know, different cookbooks. And that's basically a chicken consomme. And um, what they do is they make this solid custard, which is called a royale, and then you can cut it into cubes or rounds or anything, basically, and you would put that inside the consomme and serve it. I mean, you want to talk about classical French cuisine, you know, uh, that's a great example of it. So, yeah, so that's that's consomme uh, in a nutshell. Probably one of my favorite things to make uh, in the kitchen. I don't make it a lot, but um, when I do, I really enjoy it um, a, a lot, actually. Now, uh, moving on with clear soups, one more type of clear soup is called a clear vegetable soup. um, And that's going to be based on uh, a clear broth or stock. But obviously with the name clear vegetable soup, you're going to have garnishes and pieces of vegetables cut into uniform size that are inside the soup. Um, Possibly minestrone is an example, or I'm sure everybody's heard of French onion soup. That's another example of a clear vegetable soup. All right, now, that's the categories of clear soups. Moving on to our next category, uh, which are called thick soups. Now, classically, uh, thick soups could be broken down into many different categories. Um, The first one are cream-based soups. Um, So, cream soups are basically um, built off of two of the leading sauces that we talked about last week, classically. Um, You would make a bechamel sauce, a thin bechamel, which if you guys remember from the podcast last week, that's um, milk or cream and a white roux. And then, you know, you can add in various flavoring components. Um, You know, an example here is if you were making cream of broccoli, you could add in the, the broccoli... You know the broccoli stems and puree it all up and strain it and then you finish it off with a little bit of heavy cream the other type of cream soup is based off velouté if you guys remember from last week on the stocks episode velouté is stock and roux white stock and roux and classically this would be finished with a what's called a liaison also talked about last week in my stocks episode um I'm sorry, my soups episode, oh my goodness, <laughs> my sauces episode, that's, that's hilarious, um, a liaison is a, a mixture of cream and egg yolks, and that would be added in th- at the very end, you would have to actually temper that in, right, and if you, I don't remember if I talked about tempering, but if I didn't, tempering is basically where you take the cold egg yolks and cream, And you add a little bit of the hot liquid into that and mix it up. Add a little bit more hot liquid, mix it up. A little bit more hot liquid, mix it up. And basically, you're slowly bringing the temperature of the cold liaison to somewhat meet the temperature of the hot soup. And then you would add that liaison in. And basically, you would very gently keep it warm. You shouldn't really cook it after that. Okay, so just remember, bechamel finished with heavy cream, velouté finished with liaisons. Okay. Obviously you can use both hard vegetables and soft vegetables. Um, I talked about a cream of broccoli, cream of spinach, cream of asparagus, you know, uh, a squash base soup. I mean, there's many different types of varieties that are out there. um, The main thing you got to remember when it comes to cream soups, though, is that the main ingredient has to be soft near the end when it comes time for the blending process. You can, you know, classically, they might have used a food mill. Nowadays, we're going to use blenders or or a hand blender. But generally, your cream soups are also strained afterwards. So you got to keep that in mind as well, because, uh, you know, you got to be able to get it through the strainer. Our next type of thick soup is called a puree soup. Um, You know, and and purees can be made from lots of different things, mainly from starchy vegetables. A lot of times when you see purees, they're made out of legumes, though, like beans or lentils or or things like that. Um, And basically the main ingredient is simmered in some kind of liquid and then either a portion or all of the soup um, is pureed. And... What's different here between a puree and a cream soup, obviously there could not be, there might not be cream, but in a cream soup, they need some kind of starch to thicken it, which is generally the roux versus a puree. You've got the thickness from the ingredient in there already as a thickener. So you don't need the addition of, uh, uh, some kind of thickening agent generally. Um, Purees are usually not strained, but they may be. Uh, basically, if I were to make a puree soup, everything would go into the pot, and I would put my hand blender in there, my you know immersion blender, uh, or I would use my actual blender you know at home, and basically be, uh, blend it up until it was smooth, and it would stay the same way it is. I generally wouldn't strain it. Um, sometimes, like I said, you can add cream, but but not always. Um, So, you know, it's funny when I was looking at some of these categories a little earlier before the podcast and I came to puree soups, I still to this day can remember tasting the best puree soup I probably have ever had in my life. So a long, long while back, uh, I used to work in New York City at one of the um, hotels uh, there, you know, um, in Times Square. And we had um, this cook that worked there. He was, I believe he was from Egypt. Um, but he made this soup one day, uh, for, um, uh, I think it was for a banquet and it was pretty simple. Basically he took chickpeas that were already cooked, um, and washed them off, got off the brine or whatever, put that in there, uh, put it in the soup pot along with some, uh, vegetable stock And then he seasoned it, and one of the main seasonings I remember, though, is he put cumin in there, and he let this cook for a little while, and then he pureed it up. And my God, this soup, it just perfumed the kitchen, but when I took my first bite, I was just blown away how amazing it was. And for him, it was like nothing, you know, like he probably made it, you know, who knows how many times, and it wasn't a bunch of ingredients, but for me, it was just uh, a new flavor profile that I hadn't had before, and it was just amazing. So that's a great example of a puree soup. And and like I said, sometimes they're made from legumes and obviously chickpeas would fall into that category. All right, now we get into the chowders. All right, so chowders actually get their name from the French word chaudier, which basically means a kettle in which fishermen made their stews, pretty much. I hope I said that right, um, the French word, but that's basically where the term uh, comes from. Um, classically, they were made with seafood and, uh, potatoes. Okay. And you think about chowders today, you know, a lot of chowders that are out there, clam chowder and and things like that, they generally have seafood in them, but not always. Um, basically today it can pretty much reference to any kind of thick hearty soup. And a lot of time chowders are actually served actually as like a main dish. Um, example, We talked about clam chowder, right? You guys, uh, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Manhattan chowder, um, which is a a red-based clam chowder. Uh, Corn chowder is another example that you may see today. Obviously, it doesn't have seafood in it, but they use the name. Um, What's different about chowders is um, they use this method. It's called the Singer method uh, for making the roux. Uh, to thicken it if you need a roux. And the Singer method is basically where you take your vegetables in the beginning, maybe your mirepoix, you know, your carrots, if you're using them, or possibly onions or celery, uh, whatever it is that you're using, and you sweat them a little bit. Um, with the fat and some of the liquid that has come out from the vegetables, what you would do is in the pot, you would actually sprinkle flour over the fat And some of the moisture from the vegetables. And you would actually make your roux right in the um, pot that you're going to make the soup in. Versus a velouté or a bechamel-based soup, you would make the roux separately. And you would add that in to um, your uh, warm, you know, your warm bechamel, your warm milk or whatever it is. Um, And then, you know, so here you're making the roux right in the same pot that you're making the soup in. And you you know you cook it down however far you want to go. One of the things you got to remember though when you follow this method is whenever you add a roux, um, whenever you add a roux into um, a soup or a sauce or whatever, the roux is supposed to be opposite temperature of the liquid. So in this case, the roux is going to be hot. Your liquid needs to be cold. Okay, and that way you should have an easy progression of the roux cooking into the liquid. If both of them are hot, the starch granules don't absorb the liquid as easy. And what happens is they clump up together. um, And sometimes you end up with what we call rou balls in the soup or or sauce or whatever it is. uh, And If they don't cook out and you were to serve your soup and you had these roux balls in there, they would not be very uh, appealing to your guests. So just remember kind of if one thing is one way, you need to do the other, right? So if the roux is hot, the liquid should be cold or vice versa. All right, next type of soup in the category is called a bisque. So classically, if you look up a bisque in, you know... uh, cookbooks, um, they are generally based off of crustaceans. And when we talk about crustaceans, we're talking about, um, anything kind of seafood based with a, a shell on the outside. So an example would be shrimp, lobster, or crayfish. Uh, and classically they would thicken bisques with rice or rice flour, or maybe even bread, you know, it could be a good way to use up some stale bread. And a lot of times, The shells are actually used in the soup. And what you can do is uh, before you add in your thickener, you can make the base of the bisque. Um, You know, so an example would be a shrimp bisque. You may cook down the shells, um, you know, in a little bit of butter. Add in maybe a little bit of tomato paste and you cook the tomato paste with the shells and some of your mirepoix. Add in your broth over that. Um, And then uh, you cook that together and then you could puree, you you could crush that up, puree it up and you could strain it out. Then you have this super flavorful base for your bisque. Then you can add in your thickener to to thicken it up, add in some cream, add in, you know, your, your seafood, your shrimp, whatever, to finish it off. So it's a very rich soup, um, but definitely one of my more favorite soups, but I just have to have smaller portions of it. Um I don't like too much of the bisque because it's such a rich soup, but uh definitely you know you see bisque on the menu right away you think kind of a little bit more of a exquisite type soup. Um, you know, today in today's menus you'll see bisque a lot, but it doesn't always necessarily mean that it has crustaceans in it. A great example I use is tomato bisque, right? You you'll see that on menus sometimes. Um, generally it's not going to be made with any kind of seafood, but they use the name just because it makes it sound, it has a better, um, annotation, right? A little bit more of a higher class sounding to it uh, versus tomato soup. Because the first thing that comes to mind when you say tomato soup is that tomato soup that's in a can, right? Um, so tomato bisque is definitely going to sound a little bit nicer on your menu. So those are the basic main categories. The last one is um, cold soups, which kind of sounds like an oxymoron. um, And it does sound a little weird, but there are actually some pretty nice cold soups um, that I've made and that I've had before. Um, You know, the first one that I always give as an example is called gazpacho, which is a a soup that originated uh, from Spain. Originally, gazpacho was actually nothing more than bread. Uh, with a little bit of garlic and, you know, water or some kind of flavorful liquid. And, you know, it was a a peasant-style food. Um, They would use, you know, obviously whatever was left over for bread that was stale and make a soup out of it. Now, today, gazpacho means something much different. You know, if you go out to eat and you see gazpacho on the menu, it is generally some kind of um, tomato-based soup. And it has vegetables, cucumbers, peppers, um, you know, diced tomatoes, it uh, 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 has some kind of seasoning in there. Um, sometimes it will you know, season with sherry vinegar. Um, obviously, you know, salt and pepper, and you would use some kind of maybe tomato, you know, juice or or something along those lines as the base. Actually, one of my favorite soups uh, is yellow tomato gazpacho. I don't see it very often, but when I do, I will def I would definitely order that uh, on a cold. Uh, I'm sorry, on a hot day to have a nice cold soup like that is amazing. Another one I talk about is, uh, it's called Vichyssoise, And this is a, a, a soup that, a, you know, a lot of times students may see or make in culinary school. And basically it's a cold potato and leek soup. Um, you basically make a potato soup with leeks, which is a form of onion and you puree it up and then finish it with cream and then chill it down and you would serve it cold. The thing that's tricky about cold soups though is when you taste them, when they're hot, they may taste good, but once they're cold, the seasonings are diluted and it will not have that same seasoning profile. So you have to retaste it after you chill it down and make sure that your seasonings are on point before you serve it. And the last type of cold soup is um, fruit soups, which definitely sounds very, very strange, but an example Um, that I love to make or that I've had before as well is a a cantaloupe soup or I I would call it a cantaloupe bisque Um, but there's many other different types of fruit soups Uh, and basically it's uh, fruit um, uh, you know sometimes a little bit of, of some kind of fruit liquid to slightly thin it out. Um, I've seen yogurt added into uh, some uh, fruit-based soups. Sometimes a little vinegar is in there, like a sherry vinegar, balsamic vinegar. Um, Sometimes a little honey may may need to be added in. You don't want to go too sweet with it though. Um, But you know, that way the honey may be able to help bring out the sweetness a little bit more of of the fruits if they're not perfectly ripe. And basically it's all kind of pureed together. But that's a great example of a something uh, that could be very, very refreshing for a lunch on a, on a hot day. And then now it is time to talk about a soup that I love to make at home. So, you know, we talked about that soups can have a, a restorative quality. You guys may have heard how bone broths can be You know, real great for you when you're not feeling well. Great for your possibly your your gut or your immune system. Um, So one of the soups that I make at home if someone's not feeling well is I make a lemon chicken and orzo soup. Um, And it is pretty popular in my household. Everybody will eat it, sit down and eat it. And uh, even the kids seem to enjoy it, um, especially when they're not feeling well. So my lemon uh, chicken and orzo soup. It's really not a lot of ingredients, um, but obviously I always start with I always buy a whole chicken. Um, you know, for me, I, it's not very difficult to break down the whole chicken into eight pieces or whatever. Um, but I love to use the whole chicken, especially because of the bones, right? Which really helps to flavor the soup. So I start with a whole chicken. When I get it home, I get it out of the package, I wash it up, okay. Pat it dry a little bit. Make sure if there's any uh, giblets or, or anything that's in there, get those out of there. Leave the neck, though, if that comes with it. Um, and then I, I just chop it up into pieces, right? And basically, I put that into a pot and I cover it with s- some kind of liquid, right? You could use water. Um, I generally use um, a stock that I've made. I, I think I talked a little bit earlier in my la- my podcast on stocks that I make my own turkey stock at Thanksgiving and I end up canning it right? So, or freezing it, whatever. And so I'll take some of that stock and then I'll add a little bit of water on there. Um, And that way I know I'm going to have a really flavorful soup when this is done. And so basically um, I put the whole chicken in there with the liquids, and then I may add a little bit of mirepoix, a bay leaf, um, you know, mirepoix being a little bit of carrot, onion, celery. Uh, I may add in a clove of garlic as well, bay leaf, And basically, I just let this cook for a while, like an hour or so, you know, whatever, half hour. Um, But basically, um, you want to make sure that the chicken is cooked. But more importantly, you want to allow some time for the bones to release their flavor as well. So, you know, even though the chicken may be fully cooked, it's a good idea to let it cook just a little bit longer if you can, if you have the time to really let the flavors come out of the bone. All right. So once that is done, okay, um, basically, I'll take the chicken out. And I'll put it to the side and I'll let it cool down because I'm going to come back and I'm going to shred that chicken a little bit later on. And then now you can go one of two ways, right? If I'm in a hurry, I'll take my vegetables that I've cut up and I'll put them right into the broth and I'll just start cooking it. But if I have time, I'll get a separate pot going or you can actually do this while the chicken is cooking and I'll put my vegetables in and I'll sweat them, okay? So um, examples of vegetables I use are carrots, onions, celery um, and kind of whatever else I may see at the grocery store that looks good. A lot of times I'll actually use a rutabaga. So rutabagas are a root vegetable. Uh, If you go to your local grocery store, you should see them there. Um, They look kind of like turnips, if you're familiar with what what a turnip looks like. But the difference is, is rutabagas will have a purplish color and they'll also be a little yellowish on the outside versus the turnip which is usually white and slightly purplish. I am not a too big of a fan of turnips in my soup because of the strong flavor they have, but rutabagas will actually add a little bit of sweetness to your soup and that's why I choose them. On top of that, they're loaded with vitamin C and potassium and uh, definitely could help, you know, boost up your immune system along with everything else you got going on there. Now, you heard me say I sweat the root vegetables. What the heck does that mean? Well, think about your own body. What happens when you sweat? Moisture comes out of your skin. Well, you want the same thing to happen to the vegetables. When you're sweating them, you're basically cooking them in fat, usually butter, over a very low flame because you're just trying to draw the moisture out. We're not trying to add color or caramelize them, okay? And when you're sweating the vegetables, it's a good idea to have a cover on there so that the moisture hits the top, the lid and comes back down into the pan so that you keep plenty of moisture in there so you don't caramelize the vegetables. All right, so I sweat the vegetables. Sometimes I'll put some garlic in there. I always put ginger in the soup. Ginger has amazing qualities that you're all probably familiar with. It adds a nice little bit of a spice to the soup as well as bringing lots of great qualities that can help with with your immune system. Basically, that goes... If I'm doing it that route, then I'll take my broth. I'll put it over the sweat vegetables. I'll let that cook for a while, okay? And then while that's cooking, that's when I'll start to shred the chicken. I take the skin off. I may put a little bit in the dog's bowl for sugar, my dog's sugar. Um, But usually I'll just get rid of that, and then obviously I'll take the bones out. Sometimes I keep the bones, like I said, I keep them for Thanksgiving or a lot of time, you know, whatever. Sometimes I'll just get rid of them, depending... Uh, But then I have all my chicken shredded so that's ready to go. Now the other thing I add into the soup is lemon. So I'll season my soup with lemon near the end and I'll also add in some spinach. I'll wash it up real good um, and I'll shred it up and so I'll add the lemon and the spinach near the end of the cooking process and then depending, sometimes I may add a little bit of kale in there as well also shredded. You might need to let the kale cook just a little bit longer uh, than the spinach. The last thing I add in is orzo. So orzo is that pasta that looks like rice, okay? And if you go down the pasta aisle, you'll see it. It's usually in a small box. It looks like rice. People think it's rice, but in actuality, it is pasta, very small pieces of pasta. So the orzo can be cooked different ways. And when I teach in culinary school, I always tell students you should never cook your pasta in the soup because once you start the cooking process, you can't stop it. Right. So that pasta is going to continue to absorb liquid to the point where it's going to swell up and just become mush in the bottom of your soup pot. So you should always cook your or your pasta separately, cool it down, and then you can either add it into the soup if you're serving it right away. Or if you're in the restaurant, we would put it into the bowl. Right. We'd warm it up real quick in, in boiling water, put the pasta in the bowl and then cover it, cover it with the soup and then send it out to the guest. At home, I cheat, I'm not going to lie, because generally we eat most of the soup right then and there. Um, you can toast your orzo, so you could take a saute pan with just a little pinch of oil, put the orzo in, and you could toast it up like you would toast nuts or any, you know, some kind of almonds or something, and it brings out a whole nother flavor profile, um, and then add that into the soup, or you can just add the orzo right into the soup and then just let that cook for it. It really only takes about five minutes. While that is cooking, that's when I would add in the lemon and the spinach and the kale. And then basically check my seasonings and um, pretty much make the dinner bell sound and call everybody in for dinner and everybody's ready to go. And usually at my house, we serve it with a little bit of French bread and uh, a little bit of butter to go along with it. So uh, definitely one of my favorite things to make, um, especially, like I said, when people aren't feeling well at the house or or it's a cold day like this, there's just something... Really great about having a warm bowl of soup to fill your belly and just make you feel good overall. So, I want to thank you for uh, tuning in to this episode of um, Soups f- from the Chef's Table. And um, I've got a lot of things coming up um, that I'm planning. I'm in the works with a good friend um, to uh, hopefully uh, get him on the podcast to talk about a very cool topic. So, I got some great things planned. And I'm really trying to build this podcast up so like i said if you guys uh definitely if you want to hear me talk about anything or if you have ideas for guests please leave me a comment all right hope you guys have a great night and uh pay attention i'll have another podcast coming soon